0: back to another episode of what had happened a true crime podcast i am your host kimberly bringing you lesser known true crime stories thank you for returning for another episode i hope everyone is doing well <sighs> okay quick sigh my thoughts have been with the families of all the victims of all the school and mass shootings that have been occurring here in the u.s the past few weeks so sorry not sorry my head really hasn't been in the game it's been you know kind of elsewhere when it comes to that type of stuff it really bums me out and it strains me a little bit emotionally um because i'm always thinking about the people and then it takes me like a minute or three weeks to you know get my head back in the game so i'm back so let's take a quick moment of silence before kicking off this episode Okay, fam. Time to get into it. It feels really good. Not gonna lie. It feels really good getting back into recording. Sorry. I've missed you all. I hope you've all been able to enjoy your surroundings because, you know, different types of weather, different seasons, different parts of the world. But it's summertime here in the U.S. So I hope you guys are, like, super enjoying that. Happy Pride Month! Woo! Yes! And Happy Father's Day today! It's me being tardy for this party to record today, you know, reflected on, like, having a dad and, you know, my children and their dad. So that's been super dope. Anywho, thank you so much for being a huge part of that whole refill of my soul. I am so grateful for you and your listenership. And you know what time it is. It's time for me to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is your shout out time. Welcome back. Franklin, Charlotte, Raleigh, Winston, Salem and Holly Springs, North Carolina. Hi, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Eden Prairie and Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Hey, Phoenix, Queen Creek, Gilbert, Tucson and Chandler, Arizona. New London, Columbus, Cincinnati, Akron, and Cleveland, Iraq. You You're the best, Chattanooga, Memphis, Nashville, Kingsport, and Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome back, always, Luxembourg, Italy, Singapore, Belize, Guam, Morocco, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Libya, and Peru. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and follow all of the social accounts that can be found in the description box with my references per the usual. So last episode, I discussed the scores of veterans who were murdered at the hands of VA nurse Kristen Gilbert for nearly a decade in Massachusetts. Today's episode, I wanted to travel back down south to the Sunshine State and tell you what had happened at the hands um, of of a serial rapist and then killer along the Tampa Strip. Robert Joe Long was born on October 14th, 1953 in the tri-state border city of Canova, West Virginia, Canova's name deriving from its bordering states of Kentucky, Ohio, and Virginia, for those who didn't figure that one out. I thought, I think it's cute. She cute. His parents were Joe and Luella Long. So, when Bobby, as he was affectionately referred to as born, was born, it was discovered in, I want to say it was like his pubescent years, that he had an extra X chromosome, commonly known as 47 X Y, which is a specific variant of Klinefelter syndrome, which results in the body producing extra estrogen, which can cause breast development and other feminine features. In 1955, <clears throat> pardon the throat, my goodness, let's take another sip. It's dry in here. In 1955, after his parents separated, Luella and Bobby jo- or Bobby Joe, yes, relocated to Florida. To support herself and her son, Luella worked as a cocktail waitress. I saw pictures of her, she was gorgeous and i say that to say this while the two um struggled for many years you know to live because you know she wasn't making a lot of money and this is the oddball part the two shared the same bed she also as we've seen in a lot of the other stories that i've told i know this happened in the neely story <clears throat> excuse me for instance, where Luella had a lot of male suitors who frequented her bed. So, as a little boy, Bobby was ostracized and bullied for scores of shit. And it all began to fester into. A deep-seated hatred for women particularly his mother we hear this a lot when it comes to serial killers whose victimology is geared towards women Bobby was also described as accident prone sustaining his first of multiple head injuries at the age of five when he fell off of a swing so he like fell off of a swing he got hit by a fucking car like All sorts of crazy stuff and a lot of it resulted in head injuries and we should keep all of that in the forefront of our minds. When Bobby was 13 years old, he met his childhood sweetheart, Cynthia, Cindy Bartlett, which interestingly, this was the exact time that Bobby stopped sharing a bed with his mother. Okay, as soon as he got with Cynthia, he stopped sleeping in the same bed as his mom. And so, kudos on that one. Whew. Okay, and the thing is this. We'll say I will say this. This is what I read. Where you would think that there would have been a bone of contention between Luella and Cynthia because... Cynthia had now taken all of the attention from Bobby and all of this other shit. Um, there was no beef between Cynthia and Luella. If anything, the two came together to, you know, manage, I guess would be the, I hate to use the word manage, but to coexist in Bobby's world. Heyo, that was a great cartoon. Anywho. The couple would continue to date throughout the rest of their academic years. Following high school graduation, he became an electrician's assistant. And the following year, Bobby enlisted in the U.S. Army. Shortly thereafter, on January 25th, 1974, Bobby married Cynthia. Not long after the couple married, red flags began to crop up in their relationship. Cynthia recalled how, for instance, Bobby hated the smell of popcorn and garlic, specifically, and he would admonish her if she consumed either. There were also times where Bobby would accuse Cynthia of having affairs because she was just having general conversations in social settings, you know, with men. Like, you're at the neighbor's barbecue and the PFC next door, is asking if you brought the potato salad and now bobby thinks that the two of you are banging this is very textbook we've seen this before as well so shortly after the couple married cynthia became pregnant with the couple's first child On March 14th, 1974, so that didn't take long. They just got married at the end of January. They're newlyweds. Bobby was in a motorcycle accident that resulted in a five-month recovery process in hospital. So at the time of this accident, the frontal lobe injury sustained seemed to have completely changed Bobby. Hospital staff noted that although bobby was in a body cast he would masturbate like hell a lot to quote my friends in california okay like and they would catch him doing this repeatedly so it would be like you know like five plus times a day and they also noted that his disposition was volatile and aggressive The head injury Bobby sustained impaired his impulse control, activating a severe case of hypersexual behavior and aggression. Upon being released from the hospital, Bobby was discharged from the army, you know, because of medical issues. Having been discharged from the army, Bobby went back to school and trained to become a radiologist or an x-ray technician, um... 6 months after the birth of their son Cynthia and Bobby became pregnant again this time with their daughter who was born in 1975 While Cynthia would say that Bobby was stern he was a stern man he w- was also a great father who doted on their children but when Bobby came home from a hospital also, you know, as his spouse, she noted that he was a completely different man from a person she'd grown up with. And let's also take that into consideration. She'd known him since they were 13 years old. Okay. So she'd grown up with him and she'd loved him since she was a child. So while Bobby had always been hot tempered in the past, the new Bobby was increasingly violent. This was the new aspect besides the hypersexuality being activated he was now becoming violent bobby would abuse cynthia verbally and physically during the course of their marriage when bobby wasn't abusing cynthia she said he'd leave the family home for hours on end unaware of the true depths of darkness that were residing inside her husband she believed him when he would just say that he was going out in the night to well she didn't believe him He said he was going to clear his mind. She thought he was just simply having an affair. Oh, no, it was way danker than that. Of course, this is what had happened to True Crime Podcast. Are you kidding me? So he said he was going out to get air and clear his thoughts. But instead, Bobby began feeding his insatiable sexual appetite by raping women he found selling items in classified ads. Finally, in 1980, 80 so this is like five years later after sustaining a beating that resulted in her need for medical attention where you know they asked girl are you like are you being abused and she denied 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 the staff didn't believe and so they had the they had to notify the police and of course when the police showed up she was like no 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 but you know she got her fortitude she found her gumption she took the children and she filed for divorce following the divorce bobby continued raping women he'd find selling items in the penny saver and classified ads it's estimated that during this time at he was noted he was noted as the classified rapist bobby raped 50-plus women in Fort Lauderdale, Ocala, Miami, and Dade County. Answering ads, selling small appliances and furniture, the ruse was this. Hold on, I like to hit that with the echo. Ruse. The ruse was this. Bobby would show up well-groomed, and if the seller was a single woman, or hell, even if she was a married woman, if her husband was gone... there were no signs of a man there present at the home bobby would say that the item being that he would like to use the bathroom and while he was in the bathroom he would pull out his rape kit which included bindings and a knife and bobby would bind his victims rape them at knife point and then rob them now If when he arrived, a man was present at the home, Bobby would say the item being sold wasn't what he was looking for, and continue hunting the classifieds for his next victims. So, for the younger sect who don't know what the fuck a classified is, so before the internet, the shit was in print, like in the newspapers or the penny savers, where like where you could advertise all sorts of free shit. Um, and, like, normally you would leave your phone number, sometimes you would leave your address, I mean, if you were smart, you would leave a P.O. box, you know, for correspondence, but, I mean, like, at this time, there was really no other way to, like, say, hey, pull up, I'm selling this, that, or the other, you know, and the apps weren't available at the time. And I'm not going to name drop the apps. You know what I'm talking about. Where we do this stuff now. Same, same. Except for there weren't safe places. You know, people weren't. I don't think people were real. People were very uh, trusting. And so they weren't, like, picking safe spaces to meet up for these pickups and drops and stuff. Especially if it was a damn small appliance. Like, I'm thinking, like, shit. Freezers and I don't know what quantifies as a damn small appliance, a blender, who knows. Anyways, so he would just do this, and this was what was getting him off sexually, and it was feeding his appetite. He continued, like I said, there was 50 people, 50 women that he victimized. Interestingly, in 1981, Bobby had a female housemate named Sharon Richards, In October 1981, Sharon accused Bobby of rape. However, police lacked evidence. Two weeks later, the two had an altercation that resulted in Bobby striking Sharon. With charges brought against him for that assault, Bobby hightailed it back to West Virginia, and he stayed there until 1983 when he moved back to Tampa. Upon moving back, In July 1983, Bobby was an x-ray technician at Humana Hospital, where he met a nurse named Emma. The two would begin a relationship, and Emma, a devout Christian, would encourage her new beau to attend services with her and become a member, probably, you know, of her church community. During this courtship, Bobby would gift Emma expensive jewelry he actually had pilfered from his rape victims, and Emma never questioned where these expensive gifts were coming from and how he was able to afford them. In September 1983, Bobby was found guilty of the assault charges brought against him from his 1981 attack against Sharon Richards, but he wouldn't drop it. His id would not allow him to. His ego would not allow him to be beat by her. He was infuriated, so Bobby petitioned the court and wrote numerous letters to the judge demanding a retrial on the grounds that the attack against Sharon Richards was her fault and not his own. And subsequently, a retrial was granted. November 1983. Bobby was charged with sending a 12-year-old Tampa girl an obscene letter which included graphic photographs. Sick fuck. Police were able to trace phone calls made by Bobby to the girl. Um and he was sentenced I hope you're doing way fucking better in 2022 um Florida Because at the time, he was sentenced to two days in jail and six months probation. In the beginning of 1984, Bobby faced off with Sharon in court once again, fighting the assault charges from 1981 and, you know, the guilty verdict from 83. Despite testimony from credible witnesses who backed Sharon, Bobby was acquitted. As he exited the courtroom, he laughed at her. Free of that legal hindrance, Bobby would begin frequenting the strip heavily, where there was a heavy concentration of sex workers and strip clubs, similar to Times Square in the 70s and 80s, I'd imagine. And in 1984, Bobby would cross over from being a serial rapist to a serial killer. On March 27th, 1984, Bobby cruised up and down Nebraska Avenue in his maroon 1978 Dodge Magnum like a shark. 20-year-old artist Ann Wick crossed paths with Bobby that evening. After coercing the 20-year-old into his magnum, Bobby abducted Anne and raped her viciously. Unsatisfied with just raping her, he strangled her and discarded her body. It would be eight merciless months in the Florida elements before her remains would be discovered. May 10th, 1984 was the last time anyone had seen... I, I want to say her name is Gwen. Long, aka Lana, a 19 year old Asian exotic dancer who worked at the Sly Fox Lounge in Tampa. Three days later, Sunday, May 13th, was Mother's Day. That evening, a few teenage boys were walking through a field near I 75 when they observed a peculiar odor. The boys decided to investigate and quickly found a black object that appeared to be a body lying in the tall grass after running to notify their parents and police arrived it was initially difficult to identify the body as her face had been infested with maggots and she suffered from rapid decay what was most peculiar was that lana's nude body which was face down was positioned it was positioned in a super macabre position her hands were tied behind her back, like her wrists were bound approximately like eight inches apart, and a noose was draped around her neck three times. There was a silk, a white silk gag in her mouth. She'd been beaten severely, and her hips were broken to pose her legs. And it was, you know, hypothesized to be done for shock value. It wasn't until a missing persons report describing lana was discovered that she was identified because of you know the severe the severity of decay and everything it was said that due to her lack of transportation lana who was also besides an exotic dancer unfortunately had a substance abuse problem so she would willingly accept rides from people On May 27th, 1984, a construction worker came across another female body in a lover's lane near Plant City, and it's north of I-4 in Hillsborough County. Officials from the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office arrived to examine the scene, and soon they realized that the scene was oddly familiar from the scene from May 13th. The mostly nude woman was on her back and she was clad in a green t-shirt, which had been ripped up the front and pulled back, leaving her arms in the sleeves to bind her. Her wrists had been tied behind her back and this was also done in a loose fashion, just like with Lana. And once again, a rope had been, you know, loosely draped around her neck three times, like the simil- like the crime 2 weeks earlier the ropes used to bind her and to strangle her were of different you know different materials there was a leash-like rope around her neck that had been partially cut by a knife possibly with the same weapon used to cut her neck and cheeks among her most serious wounds was a wide slicing cut to the neck almost a foot long that had severed a large blood vessel and she had a massive blunt trauma injury over her left ear the victim was quickly identified as 22 year old michelle denise sims who was a sex worker who had just begun working in the area two days before her abduction by a fellow sex worker on June 8, 1984, Elizabeth Loudenback, 22 years old, was a shy girl who worked on an assembly line at a local plant who had gone for a walk from the mobile park where she lived, but she never returned to home. When she failed to return home, her mother reported her missing. It took more than two weeks before her body was found on a Sunday morning in an orange grove severely decomposed. They said that she was nearly liquefied. Unlike the earlier two victims, she was fully clothed, but her hyoid hyoid bone was broken, indicating that she had been strangled. Since there were no ropes at the scene and no interstate nearby, she wasn't immediately linked to the first two murders. She was also not a sex worker, nor had she been a drug addict, hitchhiker, or a dancer, so she didn't fit the M.O. Only later would her clothing be reexamined, and it was found to yield the same two types of red fibers that would link her case to the other victim's. At this point, she was just considered merely the victim of a random murder, possibly a copycat killer. The fourth set of remains were discovered on October 7, 1984 by a ranch hand <sighs> on a cattle ranch north of Hillsborough State Park. The body had been dead for nearly a week and... And had been shoved under a barbed wire fence and was lying face down her head was a mass of maggot activity similar to lana her clothing had been scattered about her panties were on the fence her bra was on at the gate this this victim had been raped and strangled and then killed with a shot to the back of her head which was a different methodology from the others And then she was later identified by fingerprints as being Chanel Devon Williams, who was an 18-year-old African-American girl who had just been released from jail after being arrested for sex work. The FBI lab found both types of red carpet fibers on her clothing, a brown Caucasian pubic hair on her sweater, and semen stains on her clothing that contained both A and H blood group substances. The semen stains found in this case did not match the Sims case, but both had been sex workers, so the similarities among the evidence outweighed this difference. You know, also because she was also a sex worker, so there's no telling. And also, who knows when that sweater was washed? That could have been some old stuff from... You know, prior Johns. On October 14th, 1984, the fifth body was discovered in northeastern Hillsborough County. This victim's wrists were bound with a red bandana and her legs and neck had been tied with a long thick shoelace. She had been beaten about the head and raped. Her yellow sweatshirt had been pulled up to her neck exposing a bruised and bloody torso with indicators that she had been dragged. She was wearing only the sweatshirt although the rest of what appeared to be her clothing was scattered nearby just like with the you know other two cases. She was um the cause of her death was also noted as strangulation because she was known as a sex worker and drug addict the investigating team had recognized her but she was officially identified via fingerprints as karen beth Din's friend who was 28 years old to link her with the other victims both types of the red fibers that had been found on the other victims clothing were also found on her There were also brown Caucasian pubic hairs and semen that indicated A and H blood substances. The next body was found two weeks later on Halloween by a 71-year-old man clearing a ditch next to US 301 on the northern edge of Hillsborough County. He discovered a mummified body with hair still attached to her skull, so it was difficult to tell when she had been killed and dumped there, And they did not rule her out of this investigation, but they did not have much evidence, you know, to go on. They tried to identify her, but it wasn't until much later that they had, you know, the killer in custody, that they learned that she was Kimberly Kyle Hoops, known as Sugar, a 22-year-old sex worker who had been strangled to death with a black cloth choker that she wore around her neck. On November sixth, <clears throat> sorry, on November sixth, nineteen eighty four, the remains of another woman were discovered in Pasco County, the next county over from Hillsboro. A woman out on horseback ri- was out horseback riding on her ranch when she had come across the body of this victim. Body parts had been severed and scattered throughout the field, which is really fucking gross. Dr. Joan Woods, chief medical examiner of Pasco County determined that the victim had been dead and dumped there for about two weeks. Although the bones had been gnawed by animals, Dr. Woods could still determine that the girl had died an extremely violent death. There was a nine inch cord tied twice around her neck over a piece of cloth and a thick shoelace bound the wrists together. There were no bullets or bullet wounds, so they deemed this cause of death a strangulation. Despite the dismemberment, there were many similarities to the other victims of the previous murders. This victim was a Caucasian female who was approximately 20 years old and about five foot five. She was later identified after... The killer was apprehended as eighteen year old Virginia Lee Johnson, a sex worker out from the Tampa Strip. On november twelfth, nineteen eighty four, oh dear, a sign painter in Tampa came across another woman's body. The Tampa police called the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office to take a look at the murder scene. This victim wore. This one also had a leash-like noose around her neck and she had rope burns on her body. Her face was severely beaten and her legs were forced open, you know, in a macabre display for shock value. Her clothing had been thrown and discarded near her and fecal matter lay on her shirt. Dr. Miller estimated that she had been dead for two or three days and that the cause of death was strangulation. Inside the jeans were a driver's license for the victim, Kim Marie Swan, who was a 21-year-old dancer who also worked at the Sly Fox Lounge on the Tampa Strip. (sighs) On her body, they also found small particles of the reddish fibers and some brown hairs. They didn't specify whether or not they were pubic hairs or... Head hair, but brown Caucasian male hair. So the investigators were like trying to investigate everybody who was hanging out on the strip, and they used their evidence and the FBI profile of the killer to narrow their search. But the killer was still eluding them, he was always two steps ahead of them. And then he went and fucked up. He abducted 17-year-old Lisa Mc- McVeigh. While all of the other published accounts cover this case, um, the victim herself told what happened. And then, so I'm going to read her account. So, while on her way home from work during the evening of november 3rd 1984 lisa said that she was grabbed off of her bicycle and tied up by someone hiding in the bushes along the road he had a gun and he said that he also had a knife he quickly blindfolded her and forced her into his car and she was certain that he was going to kill her she begged him not to hurt her and she said that she would do whatever that whatever it was he wanted. He ordered her to remove her clothes in the car and to perform oral sex on him. He drove her around for a while um and eventually brought her back to his apartment where he held her hostage. Her ordeal lasted 26 hours as he repeatedly raped her, fondled her, And forced her to perform sex acts on him. And even made her shower with him. And he told her repeatedly that he did not want to hurt her. But, you know, despite all of this, Lisa was really smart. And she managed to keep her, you know, she managed to keep control. And she managed to keep a clear head. She looked for many opportunities to find, you know, him if... Ever she were to get free so at one point he had stopped at an on, at an ATM machine to get some money out so she peered under the blindfold at the dashboard and she memorized the interior of his car and she saw that she read the name the, you know the make she read magnum it was spelled out And she kept taking in glimpses of everything that was going on around her. Like, she saw a white stucco building, and there were red steps. You know, everything that she could take in from the little vantage point from this blindfold. And even though he insisted that she keep her eyes shut as he abused her, she still managed to get a good look at him. And um, she also She was leaving breadcrumbs good girl. She left a barrette next to the bed which was unnoticed to prove that she had been in his apartment. So after the 26-hour marathon rape session, well, it wasn't yeah, he he finally fell asleep. When he woke up, he said that he had tr- he finally trusted her and she felt that she had con- gotten him to relax. And with that being said, he was less brutal. And this is all within that 26-hour time frame. So he, she also said that he had stopped referring to her as bitch and started calling her babe. So he was now humanizing her. He was seeing her more as a human and not as a possession. He even said that he wished he could keep her. And she had no idea what he, what his intentions were, but... She found ways to keep him from being upset and getting angry. And then he seemed to lose interest in her, and he took her back into his car. And now she knew she had to find a way to get out. But to her surprise, he stopped the car and told her to get out, telling her to, quote, take care. Lisa wasted no time getting home. She woke her father, told him what had happened, and he called the police. The investigators worked, working on this serial killer case did not yet realize it, but Lisa was their big break. Lisa described her kidnapper as a white male in his mid-30s. He had a deep voice. His hair was brown, about an inch long, in a, quote, layered cut. She described him as having thin eyebrows and a short mustache big nose small ears and good teeth he was compact but slightly overweight and had come across as somewhat feminine remember Kleinfelter syndrome she noted that there was a gun and that went When she went on to describe his car, she described it as a dark red or maroon two-door Dodge Magnum with a red steering wheel and dashboard and white seats and interior. She didn't remember anything about the carpet, but she also recalled details about the apartment where she had been held captive and reaped and tried to give the officers a hint about its location, as well as the location of the bank where they had stopped, but the blindfold had limited how much she was able to give them in those descriptions. On November 16, 1984, Bobby's reign of terror was stopped when he was arrested for the abduction of Lisa McVeigh and the murders he'd committed throughout the year. After accepting a plea deal, Bobby pleaded guilty to eight murders and the rape-slash-abduction of Lisa McVeigh. Bobby received 26 life sentences without the possibility of parole, 24 of them concurrent and two consecutive, and seven life sentences with the possibility of parole after 25 years. For the murder of Michelle Sims, the state retained the right to seek the death penalty. July 1986, Bobby was found guilty and sentenced to death by the electric chair. After years of appeals, on April 23rd, 2019, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed Bobby's death sentence. It was literally the first thing that he signed. On May 23rd, 2019 at 7pm Bobby was pronounced dead after being administered his lethal injection. He had no last words. So what had happened is this. A lot of shit. The end. No, what had happened is this. Um this man was born with with a syndrome that i mean it didn't really manifest itself until he was you know pubescent but he had this emasculating syndrome he sustained a lot of head injuries especially to the frontal lobe area over the course of his youth And as a young adult, before he was even 25, which I believe is what we're saying the going rate is for the development of the brain, like 25 is when we stop developing. So technically, his brain was still developing when he had when he sustained that head injury in that motorcycle accident in 1974. Um, his mom was a weirdo with him in the regards to the co-sleeping until he was 13 years old. I understand the sleeping quarters if They only had one room or there was only one bedroom and one bed. I understand all of that. But at some point, she should have recognized as a woman, despite being the mother, as a woman that it was inappropriate to share a bed with her son, her developing son. Also, the fact that she had tons of male suitors who were coming in and out of the home being basically paraded i'm sure all of that obviously played on his a hatred for his mother b mental development c how he viewed women in general because if you go back mom was a cocktail waitress mom dressed provocatively for the time so mom was not wearing tons of petticoats and shit underneath poodle skirts or whatever mom wasn't donna reed mom was a sex kitten and there's nothing wrong with that i'm not here to shame her mom was given bombshell marilyn monroe when he wanted you know donna reed And, you know, hey, she had her own sexual appetite that she needed to quench. However, she was selfish in the regards that she paraded these men around her impressionable son. Who also was having all sorts of internal crises. Um... Because, again, as it was even described by Lisa McVeigh, he had some feminine qualities about him, and it's because of the Klinefelter syndrome. So, one thing that I did not mention in this is that when his his breast did develop, he did undergo surgery, a few surgeries to reduce the, the mass. Masses. Um, so he did have a chest reduc. He had a couple of chest reduction surgeries, but his mental was still radically different from others because he also was having all of these accident prone instances. And then at thirteen years old, he meets Cynthia, and his attention focus. Show, you know, he focuses all of his attention on her. He's no longer up underneath his mom. And he is full in with her. And, I mean, while it's sweet that they were childhood sweethearts and that they were able to, you know, run off and get married as kids, essentially, there was a lot of dark shit that he was wrestling with, obviously. Besides trying to, I feel like, he tried to over he tried to be overtly alpha and masculine to compensate for the femininity that the klinefelter syndrome produced in his body with the estrogen and the softening of features the femininity of features The delicacy of it all that may you know that may have been uh, visible for people you know um and then he got into that accident and it really rattled his noodle radically and shifted everything cynthia said he was it was like night and day he was a different person where he used to just be an asshole he was now a violent asshole And, you know, the staff had noted that he had become hypersexual. um, And that his impulses, he had no control over that. So I feel like that, plus all of his shit with his mom, his mommy issues from the past, this was just a melting pot of horribleness that was on the horizon also there's no telling how long he had these sexual proclivities that he kept at bay prior to this accident because after he came home from the hospital and was discharged he immediately began stalking women through the classified ads and raping women as a serial rapist for years before crossing over because raping was no longer enough to satisfy his urges. He then had to cross over to humiliating these women. After raping them and beating them by posing their bodies and breaking bones and dismemberment and things of this nature and becoming a serial killer. And I believe that he let the mask slip when he and his housemate Sharon had gotten into that altercation I feel that he thought he was untouchable when he got the slap on the wrist for sending the obscene letter and graphic photographs to the 12-year-old girl in Tampa that he stalked, which was fucking disgusting. I hope you do way better now. Again, as I said before, I will not renege on this. This is if this is the fucking hill that I choose to die on, this is the one. I hope you guys are doing better on that one. 2 days in jail and 6 months probation. So that he was free to go on and now become a serial killer. Great. Um but I believe that he that he let his he let the ma- he, he let it slip when a he got off with that crime and then went back like it was compulsory went out there and then stalked this this 12 year old girl and then to add insult to injury he also stalked the shit out of the judge forcing the judge to give him a retrial upon the retrial when he won and it was acquitted, he was glib and laughed in Sharon's face like, Try me, bitch. I told you I was Teflon. That's the that's the energy that I get from that. Only to go on and then become a serial killer of women that he stalked on Nebraska Avenue as, you know, you know, sex workers and dancers and... Uh, the, you know there was a couple of women who were not within that bucket but you know doing like a lot of smuts to do targeting the disenfranchised and those who don't have a voice and people who are really going to miss them and that's really fucked up too i mean everything about this is fucked up you should never be killing people like that you should just never fucking be killing people you should be killing people just say no to murder oh <sighs> but rightly so i am glad that with the verdict with you know with the trial for the murder of michelle sims he was given the death penalty and honestly he deserved his punishment because he would not have stopped his crimes because of his inability to control his impulses. And honestly, to have raped 50 women plus and murdered at least, you know, 8 to 10 women, I believe that that punishment does fit the nature of crimes and the severity of them. Whew. Okay, so that's the episode. That was a ride. I'm glad that you were here for it with me. I will be back here very soon with another lesser known true crime story for you guys. I'm going to hit you with this beautiful outro music. And I'll see you soon. Have a great one. Let's get the music open. If we could open my phone. You know what? We don't need that damn music. It's too damn loud and it's too damn late. Have a good night, guys. I'll see you soon. Bye.